Remain standing with me as we look at James chapter 4. This is the little brother of Jesus. He happens to be the bishop or the head of the church in Jerusalem. And he is sharing important, life-giving, life-sustaining words to the people living just years after uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Let's hear God's word anew for us this day. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. He doesn't walk very good, does he? Thumper? Yes, Mama. What did your father tell you this morning? If you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. (laughs) Seriously, if you can't say something nice, say it with me. Don't say nothing at all. Created in 1942. 1942, this is what I grew up on. I wasn't around in 1942. Um, but uh, this, this is how I grew up. I, this is what I learned. And I would, I would often hear this in my home. If you can't say something nice, do what? Don't say nothing at all. It's really good, a good word for us uh, on social media. It's a really good word for us in our homes. It's a good word for us in our churches, in our small groups, in our schools, um, on our teams. It's a good word for us. But isn't that difficult? Last week we looked at chapter 3, which talked about taming the tongue and how difficult that can be. James goes as far as to say, no one can do it. And so today he takes us a step further and he says, friends, if we're going to have the life that Christ came to give us, we better get serious about our faith. Get serious. Are you ready to get serious? I don't know about you, uh, but these days, these back-to-school days, are ones I look so forward to uh, with great encouragement and fear. Uh, Because I I come to realize that everything I've dreamt about and thought about since last May when the kids were about to go to school or get out of school uh, and all these things that I was going to do before school started, I've done none of them. I've got about 18 hours before tomorrow uh, when my boys go to class. So does this make sense to you? You have all these things like, oh, yeah, this summer I'm going to you know, drop 10 pounds. I'm going to work out. I'm going to get tan. I'm going to do this. I'm going to repaint the bathroom or you know, do this or edge my lawn, whatever it is. Uh, we do edge our lawn, but don't worry. But these things that we think about, what are we going to get them done? And now is the time. This is really the new year for Edmund. I mean, January 1 comes and goes. But this is the new year, right? This is where you make your plans. This is where you get your kids ready. This is your new start, your do-over. And if you're going to do it well, you have to do what? You have to get serious. You have to get serious if you're going to do it well. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. And uh, I want to remind us about where we've been living. Uh, We're going through the book of James uh, in the month of August. Next week, we'll conclude with chapter 5. And what we want to remember, first of all, uh, in all the weeks, is that James is not speaking to you. As an individual, he's speaking to y'all, to usins, as a church family. He's speaking to a community of faith. And so this is something that we all need to do, but we do it how? Together. So James speaks not to individuals, but to the Christian community of faith in 49 AD. 
Uh, we know that Jesus uh, died and was resurrected in 33. And so Jesus has been gone about 16 years. Um, Claudius is at power. Uh, Nero's about to come to power. And, and Nero's the guy that you hear about all the time in the Christian faith. A very nasty guy. Uh, he would saw Christians in two. And if he could find you, he would dip you in wax and use you as torches at his parties. It, it makes Christianity today look, look very easy. Right? I mean, around Edmond, sometimes we get upset about whether you say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. Uh, let's just say uh, we have nothing on the early church. Right? It's not the same. This is what persecution looks like. Uh, we live in relative ease as Christians in our country, in our world today. Not true all around the world, but certainly for us, it is true. And so James, speaking into this context, a very, very difficult context, says this. Friends, all, this, all five chapters boils down to this. The ultimate choice in life lies between pleasing oneself and pleasing God. And we all have to make that choice. It's about pleasing yourself or pleasing God. And, and isn't that true? You have, to, you have to make that choice. And because that choice is true for all of us, and it's true every day for us, not just once for us, we have conflict in our lives when we don't choose God. So James starts off the argument in chapter 4 like this. He says, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? When you get crossways with somebody in your family um, or at your work or in your life, where does that dispute come from? Does that come from God? No. It's not God's fault. It's because you want something and somebody else wants something. And then you have to battle over it because we live in a world of limited resources if you don't include God. God has enough for everybody, but left on our own, there's conflict. Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something, you do not have it, so you commit murder. What James is doing is he's taking the argument to its completion. If you want something, somebody else has it. Ultimately, if you don't let God come into that equation, you'll kill for it, i.e. Cain and Abel, right at the top of Genesis, right? They get crosswise, they don't work it out, Cain kills Abel. That's what it leads to. And you covet, you hanker after something, you cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask, James says. Now, this is interesting. In my life, I'll speak for me, this may not be true for you, but I bet it is. I'll have a journal, and I write in my journal things with God. And then every once in a while, um, something will happen where I get crossways with somebody, and I look back at my journal, and it will be blank for a day or two or a week or two because I know if I pray to God, God's going to tell me to forgive them, and I don't want to. I'm not ready. They were really mean to me, and I've got a good pout going. I've got a streak. I'm at 10 days. I pray that street's going to go to an end and then they might be mean to me again because I didn't pout long enough you understand how this works I want you to think about your prayerlessness in your life it's not about God it's about you isn't it about wanting what you want whatever that is or being mad at God because God didn't listen up when you told him how things were and so you stop talking to him because you know if you talk to him he's going to say stuff you don't want to hear Am I talking to myself? Is anybody else living there? You know that's true. Okay. So, William Barclay, an old, old theologian that I love, he helps me when I get to these thorny passages. He says it like this, and I think he's exactly right. If pleasure is the policy of life, nothing but hatred and division can possibly follow. You think about that. 
if pleasure, or you could put power there as well. Pleasure, power is the policy of life, of your life, of our country. Nothing but hatred and division can possibly follow. As you think about that. You see, often in church, we talk about the cost of discipleship, and it's uncomfortable. We talk about the need to pray, or the need to give, or the need to serve, or the need to do this, and need to do that. And people are like, oh, I don't know. But have you ever stopped and considered the cost of non-discipleship? Of what our world looks like when we don't follow Jesus? I think we're beginning to see a little bit of that right now. When people put their faith life on the margins, they don't follow Jesus, they don't take their faith seriously, I think what we see on TV day in and day out these days is a direct result of non-discipleship. Because the world left without Jesus is chaos and violence. So we have to be sober about this. What does it mean for us to really follow Jesus, to put Jesus first in our life? And not just on the margins, not just when it's convenient, not just when it might serve our purposes. I think it looks like this. We've got a choice to make, James says. And he knows Jesus very well. He's his own brother. He says you can live for yourself or you can live for God. And the difference is this. He says when you live for yourself, you're at each other's throats. And it tears things apart. I want something. You want something. We go for it. Right? It tears apart. But life with God draws together. You think about Jesus and the Last Supper with the towel and the basin. He is serving and loving and caring for people who are going to desert him, betray him, deny him. And he draws them together at the table because of his character. When you live for yourself, you're competing for limited resources. You you just are. And so that causes division, causes fights. If you live for God, God has all things, creates all things. And so that actually allows us to love and serve one another in ways that people that don't have God can't do it, not in the same way. Because God has all things in his hands. And then this is where it gets really important that we're paying attention. And that is when we live for ourselves, it shuts the door of prayer. Because we want something, God doesn't give it to us. We get mad at God, we stop talking to God. But you know what? We're in the wrong place anyway. Because our prayer needs to be about what God wants, not what we want. And so a life with God opens the door of prayer. It demands a life of prayer. We can't even know what we're supposed to do unless we're talking to God. Because prayer looks like this. Hey, God, what do you want to do today? What are we going to do today, God? Jesus, what do you want us to do? So we get up, we go, we live. And so it demands our prayer life. Now, you see, these are very different ways of living. A way of following Jesus and a way of living for self. And, and we have to ask ourselves, when we, when we have chaos and fights and wars and anger and all that, then we, all we have to do is, is ask ourselves, are we, have we been talking to God about any of this? And more often in my life, when things really go south, um, the answer is no, I'm not talking to him about it. Not as much. Now, there are times that I am. Certainly there are exceptions to these rules. Uh, but more often than not, um, this is about when I don't get what I want, I step away, I stop talking to God. Now, so James goes on to say it like this. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. And any of you all in the room pray, dear God, please give me that raise so I can give it to missions. Has that been your prayer? I don't think I've ever prayed that prayer. Maybe you have. I hope you have. That'd be great prayer. But that's not how we pray, is it? Dear God, give me the job. Give me the raise because I want that car. And God's like, no, that job would kill you. That job would make you get a divorce. That job would have you no longer see your kids. And plus, that car's going to break down in 30,000 miles, and then you're going to hate yourself for everything you've given up for something that's going to fall away anyway. No, you're not getting that job. It's not good for you. And then we're mad at him. We stop talking to him. So James says, look, friends, 
We don't, we don't ask because we don't want to know what God says. And then when we actually do talk to him, more than half the time, we're asking for stuff that's nonsense. He says, true prayer looks like this. Say it with me. Your will be done. Right? That's the Lord's prayer. Every week. Right? Thy will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's how we pray. That's the first prayer that Mary prays in answer to the angel. Let it be with me according to your word, she says, when she receives the Holy Spirit and is going to give birth to Jesus. It's also the same prayer that Jesus prays in the garden, the last prayer before he goes to the cross. Not my will, but yours be done. Thy will be done. This is what prayer looks like. Your will be done. So Eugene Peterson um, takes this next section that James talks about, and, and he says it like this. He says, you're cheating on God if all you want is your own way. Flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God in his way. And do you suppose God doesn't care? The Proverbs, the Old Testament, says that God is a fiercely jealous lover. So yell a loud no to the devil and watch him scamper. Did you know you could do that? Now, here, this is important. Some people uh, who are new to the faith don't understand that we are not yin and yang people, right? There's not God and the devil. That's not how it works. There's God and then everything underneath God. C.S. Lewis says that there is no opposite of God. God is God. And then there's a fallen angel known as the devil. And there's other archangels like Gabriel or Michael. And that's the opposite of the devil. So if Christ, who is God himself, lives in you, you don't need to be worried about the devil. You just say, go, leave me. Go away, and he has to scamper because Christ, God, who is above him, is telling him to go, and he will flee. And, he says, James says, say a quiet yes to God, and he'll be there in no time. So we don't need to, to say, oh, the devil made me do it. No, no, no. The devil can't make you do anything if Christ lives in you, if you've actually surrendered your life to Christ. Quit dabbling in sin, he says. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Now, I use Eugene Peterson here because the NRSV talks about adultery, and I didn't want to lose you all because it's, it's not adultery like you're thinking of. What, what he is trying to say is this. In the Old Testament, with the Jewish people and with the Christians who are now grafted into our Jewish ancestry through Christ, what he's saying is that the people of God are married to God. It's to be our closest relationship. So, God wants to be our spouse. So, if you're a lady in the room, God wants to be your husband. The one that you wake up to in the morning and say, hello, honey, how are you doing? What are we doing today? The one that before you go to bed at night, you, you talk about how your day was. The one that when you need something, you go to them and you say, hey, I really need this. When you have joy about something going on in your life, you share with them. That's what God wants to be. If you're a man in the room, it wants to be, um, God wants to be your wife, your spouse, uh, their closest relationship, the one that you can share with, the one that you're closest to, the one that you share life with. This is who God desires to be. Now, this is where it gets really tricky, friends. Around here, you've heard me say often, from John three sixteen, God so loves the, say it with me, world. God loves who? Everyone, right? We've got that down. What we also have to understand is that God's offer is open to all people, but it's exclusive, friends. It's exclusive. It is closed to every other deity, every other God. God is open. His love, his spousal love, closer than anybody else, is for everyone on the planet, everyone you will ever meet or, or hope to meet or lock eyes with. But it's exclusive. You don't, you don't get to play around with any other gods. He says, I'll be your God. I'll be your master. I'll be your friend. I'll be your spouse. I'll be your lover. But only me. Right? Even thousands and thousands of years ago with the Jewish community. Right? No other gods before me. It's part of the Ten Commandments. No other gods before me. 
right? So it's an exclusive relationship. So you might say, well, okay, so what are other gods? What are you talking about? What are other deity? Well, I think Leland Riken really helped me with this. This isn't the way it should be, but it is the way it is in our culture today. He says, we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play in our worship. Ought not be so. He said, but that's what we've come to oftentimes. You think about your own life. Work's very important. It's a big part of our life. Eight plus hours a day for many of us. And that's if we're lucky, right? So we worship our work. It's all about our work. Will this thing help me in my work? And then, if you live in Edmond, you've seen this if your kids are 12 or older. There's that day where you are heartbroken because those very things that used to bring your child incredible joy and thrill and happiness no longer do so. You go to the soccer field and they're not playing soccer. They're working at it. And they're worried about it when they go. And they're worried about it when they leave. And it's work for them. They're not playing at their play. They're not being recreated. They are working at their play. And it's devastating to their little souls. And then we play at worship. You know, if we can fit it in, if it's okay, you know, we kind of play at it. And it ought not be this way. And I'll add this. We also don't worship our worship. We worship God. Right? So it's not about the show. It's about God. We're worshiping God, not our worship. Uh, Will you read this with me? We worship our work, work at our play, and play in our worship. We've got to work against this, friends. That's where our culture leads us. Right? So James says it like this. Draw near to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He wants that loving, close relationship with you. So cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, going this way and that way. Friends, we must choose all of Jesus or none of him. That's what's offered. All in. All in. Not sometimes, not maybe, not Sundays, not back to school, not when we're in trouble, not Christmas, Easter, and crisis, but all in. We have to choose all of him or none of him. And Jesus says this about himself in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, no one can serve two masters. You can't do it. Nobody can do it. You're going to love one, hate the other. You can't serve God in wealth. You can't serve God in work. You can't serve God in anything else. You serve God. Everything else comes after that. And he says, all other things will be added unto you if you put me first. So, James, Jesus' little brother, says, so quit playing the field. You got to stop that. You got to stop hedging your bets. Put it all in on Jesus. Say yes to him, whatever that is. Say, help me, Jesus. Will you say that with me? Help me, Jesus. It is the quick and easy prayer, but it'll change your life. Help me, Jesus, all the time. Help me, Jesus, with my spouse. Help me, Jesus, with my kids. Help me, Jesus, with my work. Help me, Jesus, guide me. Help me, help me, help me, Jesus. Guide me, show me. Get serious. We are to hit bottom and cry our, cry our eyes out. The fun and games are over, friends. If you want to have the life that Christ has for you, you've got to be all in. You can't play with it. Now, let me just stop a minute. You may, that's what you expect your preacher to say. But let me back this up. I want you to think about any leadership conference you've been to, about anything in your life. Have you ever done anything with excellence? Have you done anything worthy of your life halfway? Have you? Have you put 25, 30% effort in anything in your life and felt good about it? I, I'm struggling. I mean, maybe watching TV, that's not hard. I feel pretty good about watching TV. But anything of significance in your life takes, you got to be all in. Having children, right? I hear it's hard. Got to be all in with that. A strong, healthy marriage, got to be all in. Get serious, really serious about your faith, about who you're really going to be. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you're going to get on your feet. 
I don't know about you, but every once in a while in my life, I'll have these moments where I just get locked up about stuff, and I can't seem to move. I'll, I'll feel stuck. And the only way that I can get unstuck is when I finally yield before the Lord. I kneel before the Lord, and I say, okay, God, you win. Whatever you want, I'll do. And then there's this release that comes to me and a power that comes to me that allows me to move forward because I know God's got it. And I'm walking under his protection, under his provision, under his guidance. Does this make sense? But that doesn't come until you bow the knee, bear the neck, say, God, have your way with me. And when you do that, then new life happens, but not until. Not until. And so we trust that if we kneel before Jesus, he will raise us up. That's the good news, friends. But we have to kneel. Kneel we must. There is a God and we're not him. Say that with me. There is a God, we're not him. That used to be my favorite t-shirt. I wore it out. I would wear it to every camp. On the front it said, there is a God. And on the back it said, and you're not him. It was awesome because I'd walk by and be like, yeah, there is a God. And then they'd turn around and look at the back and like, oh. Yeah, no, we're not him. We're not God. God is God and we are not. And because God is God, we cannot take his place. We cannot usurp the power of God. And what does that look like? James says, don't badmouth each other. Because every person you see is created in the image of God. And, and God called it good. Called every person on the planet. He makes them, creates them. Very good. Don't badmouth each other, friends. Because each person is a part of God's word. Created in his likeness. His message. His royal rule. The NRSV says his law. Right? And that law, that, that beauty, that good news, it takes a beating in that kind of talk. When the people of God detract from pull down, pull away, tear apart the very creation of God, we have lost our way and lost our place. We are to be honoring God's message, not writing graffiti all over it. God is in charge of deciding human destiny. We're not. We're not. And who do you think you are, James says, to meddle in the destiny of others? That is to put yourself in God's place as judge. So when we judge, we've forgotten our place. Only God can judge. And, and, and as Christians, we really don't like this. We really don't like this because if God is the judge alone, then, then we feel like we've lost some power. Yeah, power that's not ours anyway and that we don't handle well. Right? And so when we talk about Jesus and this judgment piece, it's a go-to thing. Anytime I get in this conversation with people around judgment, they'll say this to me every time. What about Jesus in the temple knocking over the tables? Yeah, one time. 33 years of life, and he's God. See a difference? You, every day on Twitter, not God. <laughs> not the same. Can we, can we just let that go now? Can you see the difference? Come on. Judgment belongs to God alone. Right? Our duty is not to judge God's law, but to obey it. Because when we begin to judge God's law, then we're in really deep weeds because now we're getting to choose which part of the law we're going to follow and which parts we're not. And if you're not careful, you're going to follow the easy parts and expect other people to follow the hard parts. Because that's who we are in our humanness. So we better let God do the judging and us do the loving and the obeying and the getting after it. So, James says this, and now I have a word for you who brashly announced today and at least tomorrow, we're off to do such and such for a year. He says, look, you don't know the first thing about tomorrow. You are nothing but a wisp of fog. Say wisp of fog with me. Wisp of fog. Y'all know what wisp of fog is. It's going to come in September when you're taking your kids in the 730 bus line. And it's going to be this little wisp of fog. And you're going to turn around. The sun's going to come up. And you're going to go back home. And it's going to be gone. 
right? Just like that. As soon as the sun comes up, it's gone. Like it was never there. you'll, You'll drive home thinking, was it foggy this morning? It looks perfectly clear. James says that's how your life is. And for those of you who are clergy in the room or grown up in clergy families, you know this better than most. Because we're the ones that get the phone call that says, you know what, my friend who was 55 died of a heart attack. My friend who was having their third child and they thought it was going to be easy died in childbirth at 30. My grandma, who was healthy as a horse, worked out every day, felt, didn't wake up. I mean, if you're a clergy family, you see this all the time. So I know that in, in ways it's easier for me to see this than for most people to see this. But this is a reality that we live in. We cannot tell whether we're going to make it home today, much less tomorrow or 10 years from now. So, so we don't do that. James says this is our habit. If, if you want to live well, make this your habit. Say, and read it with me, if the master wills it and we're still alive, we'll do this or that. Right? Uh, I grew up hearing it like this. God willing, the creek don't rise. Right? God willing, the creek don't rise. We're going to do this. But you don't know if the creek's going to rise. And you don't know what God wills. So if we're still alive, then we're going to do this and that. If Jesus asks him, because here's, you know what this, this assumes? It assumes that you're talking to Jesus. You're talking to the master. You're praying. You're talking to him. Hey, Jesus, what do you want to do today? He says this. He says, okay, so we're going to go do it. Only God knows how long you will live. Only God knows how long I will live. Say it with me. Only God knows how long I will live. Is that true? Absolutely that's true. There was a lady in my first church. They told me that she was going to die within the hour. I went to the hospital on four different occasions. I don't think she ever died. I think she's still alive. That's like 30 years ago. Still kicking. You still know. Only God knows. And then James says, because only God knows, and he's taught us all this stuff in chapter 1, 2, 3, and now 4, he says this. You've been warned. Anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. Now you know. Don't judge. Don't talk bad about other people. Talk to God. Do what he asked you to do. Lean on him. In fact, the message says, if you know the right thing to do it and don't do it, that for you is evil. Evil and sin translated differently depending on which Bible you're reading uh, these days. But let's just say this. It's not good. It's bad, right, if you know what to do and don't do it. Some people call this the sin of omission. But it's also just doing stuff that you know you ought not be doing. You're dabbling in stuff. We all do it. Again, I'm not picking on any person as an individual. As a community of faith, we have to understand the realities of which we're living. So he says, you've been warned. If you know a thing like slander is wrong and you continue to do that, that's either sin or evil. Now, you may say, okay, you said, James has said a lot in this one chapter. What does it mean to flee from the devil? What does it mean um, to stand up against evil or to flee it? And what does that look like? For some of you, temptation looks like this. Right? That's an easy one for some. It's harder for others. But it sure is pretty. And it is almost lunchtime. It's really pretty. Right? So you've got to flee that. Because it's going to knock you off the wagon. You know, it's going to completely wreck your day. You were doing well. You're a few pounds down, and now it's over. You have one bite, the cake is gone, right? right? You started eating it at about 11.58 at night. It's gone, right? For others of you, you're tempted by cuteness, right? Those kittens will grow up to be cats who are the devil. <laughs> don't, don't fall for it. 
Our youngest just went to college, and I think Chantel's going to try to get me to get a kitten. No. No. No, I'm not a cat person. I know some of you are cat people. Don't email me. I love you. It's fine. You have the cats. Keep the cats. And for some of you, though, it looks like this. God may be calling us to stand up to real evil, real problems. And it's hard. Tiananmen Square, June 5th, 1989. I remember it like it was yesterday. I turned on the news and there was this little man with his grocery bags. And he would take a step to the left because the tank was trying to go around him. And and the tank would try to go right. And he would take a step to the right. One man with some grocery bags standing down four tanks in China. Real power, real courage. The morning before, this is the morning after the military had crushed a protest in the town square. Bloody, horrible violence. This man is standing for peace and moving for peace. Now, what odds does this man have at stopping the Chinese government? Slim. None on his own, but you could argue that this image still makes a difference. Still gives people hope and courage. I would say it changed the government for a little bit. Say it may have saved some people's lives. What is God calling you to do? Together as a community, we can, we can look at this together. In our country these days, I'm reminded uh, of some important instructions, I think, that uh, some of which we know and some of it which we've forgotten, and it comes from Dr. King. Dr. King says that when we want to resist evil and oppression in whatever forms it presents themselves, which is a part of our membership vow, he says it looks like this. One can resist evil without resorting to violence. You can. It can be done. Will you read that with me? One can resist evil without resorting to violence. We can. It doesn't require violence. Secondly, nonviolence seeks to win the friendship and understanding of the opponent, not to humiliate him. We have forgotten this, friends. Nonviolence, read it with me. Nonviolence seeks to win the friendship and understanding of the opponent, not to humiliate him. I think I referenced this this last week, but the, the most powerful piece of this for me was when um, in South Africa they were fighting apartheid and Nelson Mandela befriended his jailer. He transformed that hate. And, and when he was um, on, the, on the grandstand becoming president, the jailer stood beside him. Not as a political stunt, but because he was his friend. He'd been transformed, and that's what transforms the world. Evil itself, not the people committing evil acts, should be opposed. Evil itself. Now again, we're talking about a Christian community responding to evil. Now, it's also, for, for my military friends, you also as military have a responsibility as the government to oppose evil in the ways that the authorities tell you to. So this is different, right? Let me make the distinction. When, when individuals start taking things in their own hand, it's chaos and it's bloody, it's horrible. The authorities have the authority, okay? So we have to separate those out. So if, if you're military, ex-military, I'm not beating on you here at all. Not at all. I thank you for your service, right? But it's the evil itself, not the people committing the evil acts that should be opposed. Those committed to nonviolence must be willing to suffer without retaliation as suffering itself can be redemptive, okay? So if you're going to protest, if you feel called to do that, Get ready to go to jail. It's part of the deal. Don't whine about it. You may disagree with it, but if you're, if you're going to be, if you're going to stand up and you're going to sit at the counter or you're going to protest and you get arrested, that's a badge of honor. Just take it, but don't whine about it. That's part of the deal. The suffering itself can be redemptive. 
Nonviolent resistance avoids external violence uh, at all costs and, and the internal violence of spirit as well. So read the last part with me. The nonviolent resistor not only refuses to shoot his opponent, but he also refuses to hate him. That's the hard part. This is what agape love looks like. This is what Jesus does at the Last Supper. He loves his denier. He loves his betrayer. He loves the deserters. It's about his character, not about them. And it changes the world. So the nonviolent resistor must have a deep faith in the future that God is in control and that God is moving the world towards justice and we have a role to play in that. And I pray together that we discern that together. But all of that is nonviolent, both in our actions and in our words and in our thoughts even. So how do we do this? Not on our own strength for sure. We kneel before Jesus and we trust him to raise us up with our homes, with our families, with our friends, and with our country certainly in our church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have called us to be all in with you, that you've taught us to pray your will be done. And we ask, Lord, now that you would transform our lives, that we would not dabble with the world, we would not flirt with it, that we would be committed to you and you alone as you have committed yourself to us as proven on the cross, that you are all in for each of us and for every person in the world. We thank you for it. And we pray that you would grab us in your arms again and raise us up and make us whole and live within us for the very transformation of the world. And we thank you that you've taught us even how to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.